Thank you so much, worship team, and uh, thank you for you to you for being here again this morning. Looking forward to this morning. Uh, we have a special uh, guest with us this morning. You may be a guest, by the way, and if you're a guest, you're special too. But I have a special guest that I planned to be here this morning. That's all I can say. Uh, I'd like to invite Betty Pompel uh, to come on up uh, here this morning. Did I get that last name right, Betty? All right. You did. Um, let me introduce Betty to you. Betty is the, uh, the new executive director of the factory ministries, right? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, no. We have the executive director up here. Okay, sorry. You're the new youth center director at the factory. Is that right? Yes. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, what you may have known historically as the factory just when it began as a youth center. Did you know that I was a f- the second director of the factory, by the way? Okay, good. I just wanted you to know that. I feel better now. Good. Did you know that I met my wife there, too? She was a volunteer staff member, because we're going to talk about that in a minute. Okay, there's potential there. All right, so Betty is taking over as the, um, the new youth center director, and I just wanted to give you a chance. I want you to see Betty, all right? Here's the face of the new youth center right here, okay? And also just kind of talk for a minute about what that means. Like, what does that role mean um, for you? You know, what does it mean to be the youth center director at the factory now? You talk about that for a second, if you can. Thank you. Um, yeah, so the Youth Center, uh, historically, well, I don't need to go into that, um, but we are open every Thursday night, uh, so from 6 to 8, that's the primary uh, way with that we're reaching out to uh, teens in our community. So it's open for anyone, and they come, and they get a free meal, which is great incentive, and um, then it's uh, at the Together Community Center, and so we hang out, and we have a team of volunteers who um, play with them and laugh with them and try to speak wisdom into their life. Um, and build relationships with them. And then we have a time, um, what we call our lounge time, where we share the gospel with them and um, share, again, try and share wisdom with them. And then um, we have activities afterwards where we might do a gaga tournament or um, basketball or dodgeball or arts and crafts and kitchen things and stuff like that. Um, What I tell our volunteers week after week is that we're doing this, we're building bridges into their lives for the gospel to travel over. Um, A lot of these teens are coming from really, really broken uh, families. I, I had no idea really what I was getting into uh, when I started meeting my other like part of my job. I'm the director of female student ministries. Uh, so that just means that I'm building relationships with these junior high and senior high girls, and I'm hearing their stories. And my heart um, breaks every single week as I hear uh, where they're coming from and what their, um, their challenges are. And so they come to the youth center and it's a safe place for them where they're not being um, used or um, hurt. And um, it's a place that we want to just show them what healthy adults uh, look like, uh, what care looks like, um, and just, just seek to love them and seek to build relationships with them so that they trust us and they turn to us when life is really difficult. And um, then we can be a, su- a support system for them so that we can share the only real answer to any of their problems, which is Christ. Um, and then uh, I'm just so thankful that they come week after week. Some of them uh, don't you know, identify as Christians or uh, don't believe the Bible or would never go to church, but they'll come week after week to hang out with the staff and the students, and um, 
I like to uh, remind myself that their hearts are stone, just like all of our hearts before Christ um, busted in and um, breathed the truth into it. So their hearts are stone, and my job week after week is to pile truth on top of their stone hearts. And the volunteers that come, pile truth, pile truth, and then uh, just wait for the day uh, that by God's grace, uh, their hearts of stone um, turn into believing hearts, and then all that truth that we've been piling on just, just falls into their hearts, and that their lives are changed the way that, um, thankfully, our, our lives have been changed. So I'm, I'm talking a lot. Yeah, that's I'm good. Sorry. No, that's um, really good. So oh, that's just yeah. one part of the youth center, and then we do other activities and, yeah. and things like that. But that's like the primary thing, and then we have you know other things for them. Um, but it's hard to get Betty talking. I know. She's not very passionate person and kind of low key. Um, yeah. And so this is one thing we love about about <laughs> having you and your role and what you do. Um, so let's kind of raise our vision here a little bit. Is there other opportunities to be a part of the volunteer staff under you or at the youth center? And you know. Talk to that just for a second here. Yeah. Oh, goodness, yes. Yeah, I have, um, uh, I hope for so many more volunteers to come. Uh, what we're doing uh, right now, we could use double the amount of volunteer staff that we have easily. And um, really, that just means anyone who would be willing to give up a couple hours of their Thursday night and just be available for teenagers to, like I said, just laugh with them. Like, I consider it a win when you just have a good night with a student. It doesn't have to be you explaining the Romans road to them, but just being there and making them feel loved and safe. And if you're willing to um, give that up um, for the gospel and to pour into people's lives, like, I know teenagers are intimidating. I was scared of middle schoolers for the first, like, six weeks <laughs> that I was there, and I get um, that, but our, our team will walk alongside of you and um, be there to support you um, as you support the kingdom and, and the growth that God's doing through the Youth Center. Okay. So traditionally, we might think if I'm a young adult, this is a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you have people there who are not necessarily young adults, right? Yeah. We're not going to name names, James right. Evie, but there are people who um, are not young adults anymore. Who are, I'm sorry, James, did I say that <laughs> one? Um, who, are, who are not, you know, in their 20s or whatever who, who are doing that. Um, so is that cool too? Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Any, okay. any stage of life that they're... We have um, Pops... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's there? Who's how yeah. old is Pops? 115. Yeah, 115. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, all the way through, you know, just just out of high school that are that are helping. So really, it's okay. it's anyone that um, can can love. <laughs> yeah. So just an encouragement again. Um, great opportunity to be plugged in there um, at the factory, at kind of at any age level, and, and a real real sweet deal. Okay. Now, Betty, I just want you to know a little bit more about what drives Betty. So talk for a minute, if you can, about your story when you came to faith and what that was like for yeah. for you. Okay. This is a, okay. You got it? Yeah, I got it. Right. So, um, how many, I have a little bit of time, right? Yep. I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay, so yeah. quick version. All right, that was good. Okay. All right, that, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, is that the first um, maybe six years of my life uh, was marked by um, abuse and neglect and uh, just really dysfunctional family. I um, had a very distant birth mother, um, a very manipulative birth mother, uh, birth father, stepfather, um, just kind of bounced around from relative to relative. Um, And those uh, formative years, those first six years, were really, really not pleasant. Um, By the grace of God, when I was six, um, my birth mother's half-sister, so my aunt and uncle, um, were believers and said, this needs to stop. Uh, we, We will take Betty and my younger brother David 
in, um, and we will provide uh, love and care for them. So when I was six, I moved to Hagerstown, Maryland with the Pompel family and um, was introduced to Christ for the first time through them, started going to church um, shortly after, well, about a year after. Living with them, um, an adoption went through, so... um, I love adoption. It's the best thing that ever happened to me apart from my salvation, but I was adopted uh, by my aunt and uncle after being with them. Um, After seeing the stark difference between what uh, life was like before Karen and Bob and and watching their example of um, followers of Christ, um, I was so drawn to God. Um, I can remember sitting in a church similar to this one at a very young age and, and hearing about God's love. I didn't know anything about hell. I didn't know anything about, well, probably not too much about the cross. Um, but I was told that God would love me no matter what, which was very different than the conditional love that I, I had experienced um, through the first six years. Um, so no matter what I would do, he would always love me, and he would never try to get rid of me. And his love was amazing, and I I just wanted... Like, signed me up for that love. I didn't know much about it, but I saw it manifested in my now parents. So um, I accepted Christ uh, about a year, about the same time I was adopted into uh, a new earthly family. I was adopted into my heavenly one, and uh, best decision I ever made. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the really quick version. Yeah, I'm more to that. But so you, you come to faith, mm-hmm. and then you've been walking with Christ now for, for years. You're a graduate of LBC yeah. as well. Um, so yeehaw for that. Yes, um, good, good. And there have been times, though, I'm sure, that you've gone through periods where things have been difficult in your faith. Things have been hard. You've yeah. gone through seasons of, you know, God has been silent, not talking, I'm not connecting, you know, dry periods. Um, talk through some of that, if you can. Yeah, what sure. was that, that like? Um, so about two years ago, um, I felt like God was very silent, um, and I felt like everything that I thought he should be doing, um, like I had a really nice list of this is what you should be doing, um, he was not doing. So just as a snapshot, um, the mom who adopted me, Karen, um, had spiraled into depression and in alcoholism and was in and out of rehab and um, had lost her, not lost completely her faith, but had walked away from it in a lot of ways. And this woman that I, I, I thought God had chosen to be my mom, finally a real mom, uh, was just not there, was not healthy, could not be um, for me at all. Um, other things in my family were falling apart. I had been dating a guy for like three years, um, and he would not commit to me in marriage, and my self-worth and hope for the future um, was demolished in a lot of ways, and in that season, I um, really, really struggled with what God was doing and what he was not doing, and really struggled with, um, is, is he really as good as he says he is? Um, and I feel like um, I, don't, I don't deserve this, all of these things, like I had enough Crap, can I say crap at church? No. Happen, no. sorry, yeah, no. in life. And I feel like I met my quota, and so should, can, I, can I not have any more? Um, and I, I really just question if he, was, if he was loving and if he was good um, because uh, of things like that. And by, yeah, again, by the grace of God, um, search scripture, because I knew that was the only thing that had the answer. And I cried out to him and asked him to show me, um, if you are who you say you are, you know, I, I, knew, I knew the word, Romans 8, 28 tells me that all things work together for good. Um, and I wanted so badly to believe that, because I knew it in my head, but I didn't feel it in my heart, because things were not working out for what I thought was my good. Um, 
But um, after uh, scouring scripture and praying uh, really for months and months, if maybe even a, a year, um, I feel like God turned the posture of my heart away from the, the entitlement of what, what I thought I wanted um, to just trusting that he is who he says he is. And that's only the work of the Spirit. It's, it's not because I like, found anything secret. It's just um, the truth of God's word permeating my heart and life and, um, and just helping me switch my mind from this, this is what I want to... I, I'm, I'm a quote junkie, um, and I love quotes, and there's one by A.W. Tozer that said something along the lines of, um, when you find out that everything in life is to make you more like Christ, it solves a great deal of anxiety. And I actually cling or clung to that, that quote saying like, God, my good is to look like you and that's what I want more than anything. And so help me to want that more and help me to be okay with when I feel like you're not doing what I thought you should be doing and when you're not, um, yeah, who I think you are. Um, he shows himself to be exactly who he says he is. Yeah, that's awesome. So Maybe that's some of the answer to the next question, but, but feel free to go into that too. And finally, this, like, what would you say to people who are going through maybe now a period of time where God is silent or absent or distant? Um, how would you encourage them yeah. this morning? I mean, my encouragement definitely would be to hold on um, and to seek scripture um, because here's another quote. John Flavel said, um, one word from God can do more than 10,000 from men to relieve a distressed soul. And, and I love that one too, that if, if you are seeking him fervently and you continually just pray that, like, God, I will rest in you and then I just want to look like you. And for that to be your focus, um, you know, whether my mom was successful out of rehab, whether or not, whether I, you know, ended up, whether I ever get married or not, whether, you know, whatever the circumstances, and that's not really the, the issue. The, the thing is, is, do I look like Christ, and is that what satisfies me? Yeah, that's absolutely. That is encouraging, absolutely. Betty, um, we're really grateful to have you here, number one, and I hope that you've enjoyed just a little snippet into Betty's life um, and a great opportunity to, to partner with the factory as well in terms of uh, involvement there. But Betty, thank you so much for, for your time here. So Betty's story um, is really a lead into where we're going this morning with our um, teaching series that we're calling To Die For. We're in part seven of a 10-part series uh, called To Die For, and in this series, we're essentially saying that um, the faith that we have, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the faith that you have is not just Sunday-altering, but life-altering. Like, it doesn't just mess with a schedule on Sunday morning. It messes with everything about our lives. It's something to die for, something more than just uh, something to take coolly for granted that may interrupt here and there, but a deep seated conviction and, and, and run into the values of who we are as people if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And so in this series, we're tracking with the book of Hebrews, and the, uh, the author to the book of Hebrews has kind of a pastoral tone to him, and he's writing to people, and we're tracking it with three different movements, okay? And we, we said early on that the first movement or act in this, um, this uh, series is about who Jesus is, and he really drove hard after Jesus is fully God and fully man, and this is what that means. And the second act 
in which we're coming to the end of today, this four-part actor movement. We're talking about faith, all right? And so we began, and this is so important for this entire message and how we see faith, we began this movement of faith this way, and we said at the beginning that Christian faith, first of all, centers on Christ. Now, that may seem really simple, but here's what we mean by that. That if you have become a Christian, and you call yourself a Christian, you've come to Christ not because of the church. You've come to Christ not because of people, or not because there's been a promise that more good than bad will come into your life. If you call yourself a Christian, that faith that you have doesn't center on more good than bad coming, doesn't center on the church, doesn't center on good people, it centers on Christ. This is what the Christian faith begins with. Therefore, when things get difficult, or the church blows it, or people around you who you respect turn on you, okay, that happens, that, that really stinks, but Christian faith centers on Christ, first of all. That was week one. Week two on faith, we talked about this, that Faith doesn't go through the ears to the brain, but through the heart to the hands. In other words, faith is not something that I just have in the brain and I know it. Like I can recite my faith. You don't recite faith, you live faith, right? Faith isn't just hearing, but doing. And so we talked about the danger, even of sitting in a place like this or hearing this, if you're listening online later, and maybe even feeling convicted in your soul that you should do something. And feeling like that conviction is enough. But it's not. It's the doing. It's the act. It's the movement from conviction and hearing to actually acting out in faith that is faith. But hearing, just simply not enough. That's not how faith works. I don't own faith. I don't possess it as if it's a possession. That was week two. Week three is this. This was last week. Christians believe. That's really super simple. That's just two words. But we talked about Penn State last week. If you're a Penn State fan, some of you aren't Penn State fans. I'm sorry about that. But we went kind of deep down and said... Penn State has this slogan, you know, we are Penn State, and they chant it and all that, and that's just kind of who they are and their identity. And we said, Christians, we are believers. Like, deep down inside, that's who we are. At the end of the day, we just believe. Just flat out, we believe. And Hebrews 10.39, the author there writes this, this phrase, a sentence that to me is so profound and really nails the point of his book. He says, we, we Christians, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who believe and are saved. We are not. We, if you want to call yourself a Christian, take the name Christian, know this. Christian, you are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but you are of those who believe and are saved. So we are Christians. Believe, right? Now, I want to take this and push it further this morning and thinking of Betty's story and the silence and the, the distance that sometimes can be felt with God. I want to take this idea of Christians believe and talk about one more piece that it can be very, very difficult in our Christian faith and our walk. And that is this. Christians believe despite the devastating silence. I want to talk about this piece that Christians believe despite silence that can be very devastating. Silence that can pull us so far from our faith that we can't even see God anymore. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11, and we're going to begin in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. If you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew around you there, and that is our gift to you, by the way. If you don't own a Bible, we'd like you to take that with you. Uh, that's our way of just saying thanks for coming, okay? Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. And the way that the author works through this, by the way, is he, uh, 
he does what a lot of teachers do. He'll make a point, and then he'll illustrate it, and make a point, and then he'll illustrate it. And that's just kind of the way that will, will work. All right? So Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Here we go. He says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And let's pause it there briefly, all right? Let's start at the beginning. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Immediately, the author says, if you want to have faith, get ready to believe in something you can't see. You're going to believe in something that's invisible, okay? You're going to believe in something that I can't put my hand on, I can't help, I can't see, I can't touch. But Christians believe in something invisible. This is really hard. Because it's so hard, he'll go on to illustrate it immediately in verse 3. He says this, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. All right, let's think about that verse for just a second. He's saying, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Okay? What he's saying is, if you have a hard time believing that invisible things are real, think about the world around you for a minute. Think about the wind that you will experience when you walk out of this sanctuary and go outside. Think about the sun and the rain that we've had, the trees that you will see. Think about this reality and know this. Something invisible made what is visible. God's command, invisible, cannot see it, created that which we experience very tangibly and visibly. And so faith is the assurance that something invisible is real. And if you struggle with that, welcome to humanity. But let me encourage you, the author says, look around you to what is real and what is seen and recognize that underneath that is something invisible. The invisible created the reality of what you see. That's where he begins. And then he goes on to tell the stories. And we're going to tick through some of these stories of people throughout the Old Testament time who have walked with God in different ways in different seasons. And he says in verse talks about the faith that Abel had. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. And by faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life, so he didn't experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Verse 7, another individual. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as in his inheritance, obeyed and went. This is crazy. Even though he didn't know where he was going. That's craziness. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, which a tent doesn't have, whose architect and builder is God. 
By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, this is even crazier, and Sarah herself was barren, he was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. Like, I believe in God's invisible command that he can make something real happen. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, that's a great description of Abraham, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Now let me pause it there. Now all these people, all these people lived out a faith that they couldn't see. Now let me speak specifically here this, this morning to, to those in an older generation. All right? If you're finding yourself in an older generation, you're in an older season of life, more sunset years, I don't know, what's the, the PC way to talk about that? Does sunset years sound nice? Is that a nice feel to it? Okay. If you find yourself in those years, here's the deal. Like the way that you finish is so important to the rest of us. The way that you finish is an absolute game changer and life changer for the generations to follow you. The way that you track to the end in your faith, if you do not track to the end in your faith and you walk in when it gets hard and you give up all that, I'm telling you, it destroys the next generation. But, if you take your faith all the way to the end, I'm telling you, it has an incredible impact on the next generation. It is a seed of faith that goes into the ground, and when that seed breaks upon your death and that seed goes out, it blossoms and grows into the next generation who remembers you. And they say, oh yeah, what would grandpa have done? What would grandma have done? I remember when she said, I remember when he said. And your faith continues to the next generation. If you don't believe me, Think for a moment about the names of the people we just read. Enoch, Abraham, people who've died, who carried their faith to the end. The only reason we're reading about them now is because they carried their faith to the end. And so I want to appeal to you, finish it well. And this is what the author of Hebrews does. Look at there in verse 13. He says in verse 13, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They carried it through. They finished. And check out what comes next. Incredible statement. They did not receive the things promised. Yeah, they finished, but they never saw the things that were promised to them. They finished in the middle of maybe doubt. They finished not seeing what they hoped for, realized. But you know what they did? They finished. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, he writes. And then he goes on, and they admitted, and this is so important, they admitted, they just, just, let me just own it, that they were aliens and strangers on earth. Like, this is not my home. I was not made for this place. I'm an alien and stranger here. And then he goes on in verse 14. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. An incredible insight in verse 15. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. These people who finish well, even in the middle of devastating silence, are people who say, you know what, this, let me just own it. This is not my home. Therefore, I'm not disappointed. What did I expect? I'm in a land where I'm living in tents. I'm looking forward to a future where God is going to lay a foundation. But this is a land of tents. This is not where I am destined to to be. And here's the insight again in verse 15. If they had been thinking of this country, they would have had opportunity to return. Meaning, if they go half in, like if Abraham goes half in on his belief, 
and thinks of what was behind, there's going to be a chance to go back. And he's saying, don't go half in. Like, admit it. Own it. Like, I'm an alien and stranger in this world. What do I expect to happen? Trouble, hardship, discomfort, unease. I don't expect it to be awesome. It's not where I'm meant to be. And don't start longing for that. Don't start longing for that. Because if you start longing for the things that you're quote-unquote giving up, you're going to have opportunity to return. Instead, verse 16, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And then he continues to illustrate again. And he goes right back to Abraham. And this is so powerful to keep reading here in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of his staff. Verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they, uh, they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. Drop it down to verse 29. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. Verse 31, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. He is building momentum and energy and emotion, and then he kind of, in a way, his brain goes to think about all the more names that I could keep writing, and so he just kind of puts it out there this way in verse 32. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were, check this out, tortured, and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while some others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. That's the the legacy of the prophet Isaiah, who evidently, as legend has it, hid in a tree, the base of an old um, worn-out tree, a dead tree. And in searching for him, when they finally saw him, when they cut down the tree, they used the same saw to cut him in half as well for hiding from them. So sawed in two to end your life because of your faith. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. Let me just tell you, this is our heritage. If you're a Christian, like this is who is handing us the faith. Right? I mean, these are the people 
who are going about, and they don't even have a place to lay their heads. They're getting sawed in two. They're getting persecuted, put in prison. They're, they're dying by the sword. They're, they don't have a place to, to call home. And they're handing off the faith to us. We're like, I don't know. You know, it's kind of inconvenient. You know, kind of big ask. You know, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I should go half in. Yeah, I don't know. Should probably go because my parents want me to go. Yeah, I don't know. Here's this faith being handed off, and people who are, who are dying, who <laughs> say, "This is worth dying for." Like this is this is so deep in my soul that you can't take this from me. You can't even take this from me if silence reigns. I don't even hear from God for the rest of my life. You can't take this from me. It's such a profound piece of their character that the author writes this about them in verse 38. The world was not worthy of them. These are people who the world is not worthy of. Honestly, we look at someone like this, imagine seeing someone destitute walking around in a goat skin. Your first thought is going to be, wow, the world is not worthy of them. Right? No, the first thought is, man, I hope they find the mission soon. Like, let me get them on a bus and send them down, down to Lancaster. I mean, someone better help that poor person. Right? But this is what the text says. This is our, if you're a Christian, right? This is the Christian's heritage, the faith being passed to you. So don't expect, don't expect the white picket fence house, all right? Like, don't expect that American dream thing. I don't expect that your money is just for you to use. Don't expect that the world is going to have, because you're a Christian, all of a sudden all the wrinkles in your life are going to be ironed out. Why would you expect that? That's not what you've been handed. That's what people have done for generations. Why do you expect that? Unless you think this world is your home. And then there's going to be times in the middle of all those wrinkles in which your finances and your world and your family is all going to be thrown up in the, in the air and God's going to be silent. You're like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And I hope in the middle of what am I going to do that this comes back to your conscience. This, of verse 39 of Hebrews chapter 11, comes back to you. Check out verse 39. Incredible statement. These people were all commended for their faith, and yet none of them received what had been promised. That is devastating silence. God telling you, I promise you, this is going to come. And it never comes. And what do you do? What do you do? These people had a faith so deep that even in the devastating silence of not seeing God fulfill his promises to them, they held on. And it has such an impact that you and I can read about their stories today. And the people we're not reading about are the people who walked, who gave up, who packed it in, whose home was this world, and thought, Too much, too hard, he's too silent, too distant, I don't get it, not worth it. The world is not worthy of people like that. Verse 40, God had planned something better 
for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So here's a question for us this morning. How will I respond in the times of devastating silence? What if what you hope for is absolutely never realized? Like what if your family never returns to the way it was? Like what if you never make the team that you thought you were going to make? What if you never reach the level now that you're graduated or graduating and your future dreams in a career? Like what if that never happens? What if you never get married? What if you get married and then it ends badly? Like what if your kids never turn out the way that you thought they would? What if that pain, what if that sickness is still going to be a part of you forever? What if it actually gets worse? What if in your prayers to God you're asking for relief and you actually get worse? It doesn't get better. Your spouse gets sick and your children. What if it goes really badly? What are we going to do? Is it okay when God is distant, when he's silent, at least seemingly silent, that I can still have a faith that holds? I'm telling you, you know it. it. This This is an incredible, incredible character that Christians have handed to you and to me and said, this is what Christians do. Christians do this. They believe, despite the devastating silence. They continue to hold. This world is not our home. If we need this world to keep feeding us, for our faith to be fed, we will chase God around every corner, under every rock. We will look and try to read the tea leaves to see how God will respond. If we need him to respond to every little prayer and concern that we have, we are going to chase God. And I will tell you, we will run out of fuel for that faith. If our faith is fueled by all the little ways we think God is working, we're always going to chase the next bigger thing. Now I need God to show himself here. Oh, he did. Now I need him to show him here. Oh, and here, and here, and now over here. Oh, and there's one more thing over here and over here. At some point, there will come a time when something devastating will happen. God can't fix it in that sense. Can't restore it. Not here in this earth. It's not going to change. In the middle of that, what in the world am I going to do? And here's what the author of Hebrews is going to say. The world is not worthy of people who hold their faith despite the devastating silence. But when we do, when you do, and when you take your faith all the way to the grave, strong, you leave an incredible legacy, an incredible seed planted for the next generation to see what it really means to live life to the fullest, even when God silent. It's missing. Now, typically here at Grace Point, when we come to the end of a message, we'll often have a time of reflection, usually via song. Okay? This morning, there's something that uh, I didn't tell you about Betty, about Betty Pompel. Uh, she's a singer. Isn't that neat? So we flipped a coin to see who should sing at the end of the service, either Betty or me. And uh, it was a weighted coin, so Betty won, all right? Um, but Betty sings, and we asked her to, to close this service out with this theme here in mind. And so I'm going to invite Betty and Jen to come on up. They're going to need to take this up there with them. I'll let you guys do that. But here's the deal, all right? As Betty gets ready to sing here for us, and Jen accompanies her, 
May the words of this song, as our final wrap-up, let, let them soak in into your heart and ask this question again on the screen. How will I respond in the times of devastating silence where God is just not coming through the way that I want him to? And on the back end, I'll come up, pray, wrap us up, and dismiss.